Let's pray. <laughs> I have to stand over here to be out of the blinding sun. Thank God we got sunshine today. Father, we thank you for today, for this the change in the weather, very cheering. And we pray now you'll help us as we think through Scripture together. As we make a beginning on something that's going to take us some time to work through the books of Thessalonians, Lord, help us, help me now to explain and to leave till later what, get, what comes up later, not to try to rush through this. We, I pray that we'll all understand better because, Lord, the way we live is the way we think. And I pray that our thinking may improve so that our living changes too. Yes. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to teach through, in coming weeks, both 1 and 2 Thessalonians together. That's kind of harmonizing the two together. They're parallel letters. The f- second one adds to the first. And they're written quite close after one another, maybe only a few weeks or so between the two. Let me give you a bit of geography, which might help. Uh, it's too small and it's too bright and you can't see it. But anyway, um, Thessalonica is up there in the north of Greece, yes? And over there's Philippi, who also got a letter, and Corinth, who also get a letter. There's Athens, the capital. Over here is Ephesus in what was then called Asia Minor, it's now in Turkey, and Troas. And these places all had first century churches. And Paul would... Uh, in his travels, he'd walk from Antioch in what was Syria, it's now in Turkey, and, and if, I, if, you, if you can see this thing, oops, go back. About here, <laughs> see this thing moving? Yeah. Down there, there's a place called Syria. It was in Antioch, it's now in Turkey. There were, there were a couple of Antiochs, just to confuse us. And, and he would walk all the way around through Turkey, Visiting churches, staying overnight at a believer's home, or if they didn't find believers there in a common inn, with all the mess and the immorality and everything that was happening there. And he'd end up at Ephesus, or maybe at Troas, and then he'd he'd take a boat from Troas, or on that coast, over towards Philippi, land on the Greek coast, and then he'd visit the churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, down into the area of Achaia, to Athens, to Corinth, and so on. In fact, no no sizable church was planted in Athens during Paul's time. But there was a sizable church in Corinth and in Thessalonica and in Philippi, and we get letters to those churches from him. Uh, you, I, you did get me. He walked all the way, apart from the sea voyages. <laughs> he walked all the way. These letters were written to Thessalonica from Corinth in the south there in A.D. 50 to 51. That's 20 years after the, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. 20 years. And Paul never travels alone if he could help it, so he writes, he starts his letters as from himself and Silvanus, which is, which is the Latin way of saying Silas. Silas is the Hebrew way, and Timothy. And the purpose of both letters was to deal with misunderstanding and even false teaching that had come into the Thessalonians about the return of the Lord Jesus, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I will come again. Forty days after his resurrection, he was taken from them, from the Mount of Olives, into heaven, and as he disappeared from their sight, angels of God appeared and told the disciples, this Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And just as he's disappeared from your view now, one day he will appear. 
Well, there's more to that word appear. We'll come to in a week's time, I think. But the second coming of the Lord Jesus is right there in the Apostles' Creed, right there in every statement of faith that you get, whether it's Elims or Evangelical Alliance or something. We believe in the return, the visible, physical return of Jesus Christ. It's a basic truth of the gospel because we are not entirely saved. We don't receive all that is ours in Christ until that day when we are raised to immortality, raised to have glorious bodies and to be with our God and our Father and the Lord Jesus forever. But this topic, this doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus is the subject of so much speculation and controversy and there's so many opinions and theories that the topic gets neglected because a lot of people think this is too difficult, I'm out of here. It'll all work out in the end, that'll do for me. Anybody thought that or heard someone say that? But in these two letters, one following quickly on the other, Paul corrects some ideas and urges them not only to have a good understanding about the Lord's return, but to live in a way which is ready for the Lord's return. And I want to pursue the same goal over these coming weeks. Clearing away some nonsense, setting out the plain teaching of Scripture, and note this, of Jesus himself, because the core of all New Testament teaching is the word of Christ himself. And showing how faith, belief in the Lord's return should shape the way we live now, day by day, until that last day. A Christian, let me just make this point as we go along, a Christian who lives in real readiness for Christ's appearing is not lazy, is not merely a theorist and a speculator, but is an active and obedient servant of the Lord. They are doing their master's will. That's what Jesus taught us, and that's what Paul also affirms in his letters. So it's time to start in here. Let's read this. I need to dip into 2 Timothy and back, but there's only one verse from 2 Timothy today because Paul skips a whole lot he's already written and come further down. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. In the other letter, it's a bit longer, he adds at the end there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love. Oh, that's where that phrase comes from. And endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your election, brothers, by God. We always thank God for you, brothers. This is right, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. That's from 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians. Let's finish this off to the end of chapter 1. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in authority, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. They were convinced of these things because of the authority that was at work. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. We set an example to you, we three men. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, that's the north of Greece, and Achaia, the south of Greece, for the Lord's message ran out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. 
Therefore, we don't need to say anything. Paul wasn't planning any great more gospel missions because the church in Thessalonica were just spreading it everywhere. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned from God to God from idols. Get that right, David. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. In chapter 2, Paul then goes on to quite a long defense of himself and his role among the Thessalonians. Because no sooner had he left the church that people were criticizing him and trying to make him unwelcome again. So we'll come briefly to that next time. There are lessons there about how people ought to be doing ministry today. Sometimes the the way people get treated is because of the way they treat people. Let me just start back into some of the scriptures together. First of all, faith works. Thank you, whoever turned that down. (laughs) Faith works. Remember the scripture we just read it? Your work of faith, labor of love, endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians 1, further down, Paul talks there, the work of your faith. James' letter in chapter 2, he famously says this, faith without works is dead. We might in the 21st century call that fake faith. The real thing has fruit, produce. It has evidence. There's things that become obvious because faith is at work. Faith works in us and through us so that our good works, the things we do which are good rather than bad, are works of faith. Evidence. They demonstrate what's going on. God isn't working us by grace through faith. And therefore, what we, the way we're behaving and the, way we, the things we're doing are works of faith and good works. Faith isn't idle. It works. Faith is not unproductive. It can be seen in action. Faith is seen in evil works being ended. We put a stop to them. We no longer go there. And good works being enacted. There's a switch over in the way we are doing life because faith is at work. A faith that is taken out of the cupboard for an hour or two on a Sunday morning and then put back afterwards is not the real thing. Faith works the whole time, through a whole life, as we say 24-7. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and or loves us, better present tense, and gave himself for us. Faith works. It's active. It's not pick up and put down. It's not, uh, I'll, 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 I'll give that a little run around for an hour or so. It is actually the basis of our lives. We live by faith. And that produces action, events, decisions, uh, motive, change. Now, you, I'm not saying you you get to be a mature Christian in a couple of days flat. No, it doesn't happen like that. But there is change and more change, progressive. You grow in works of faith. You grow in faith. You grow in good works until you overflow with them or abound with them, as the old King James says. You overflow. They become the natural product of life rather than something you have to think about so often, quite so often. Faith works. Not only faith works, but hope and love also work. Remember it says that your 
work of faith, your endurance of hope, and, and your labor of love. Faith, hope, and love. Here they, they work in different ways. Faith works. Hope endures. L love labors. Hope is not wishful thinking. Oh, I do hope so. Meaning, I have a vague wish that it might be. That's, that's not hope. Hope is in God. Hope is in the character of God and the promises of God. So hope is the conviction about the truth of what we believe that causes us to endure now what, and because we have a goal ahead. We endure something now because we believe God is going to help us. We're going through it because he's going to bring us through it and there'll be another side to it. That's hope. Reliance upon God, steadfast in his truth. Hope is faith facing forwards. We don't have it now. We don't see it now. But we believe in God. It's faith that's facing through to the future. It believes God for his goodness through difficult times. It reaches into the future and believes to see God's good purpose and will. So to quote again one of my favorite verses from the Psalms. David says, I would have given up, I would have fainted if I didn't believe to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm believing to see his goodness. It's not happening now, but I'm, I'm enduring. I'm not giving up because it's going to be. Why? Because I'm going to make it happen. No, God is not going to let me down. It's his character, not my confidence. It's not how I measure my confidence. It's how I view his character. I'm trusting in him. I'm looking forward to his deliverance, to his help. So hope endures. And right from the very beginning of, of, of Christian life for these Thessalonians, they, they saw Paul and Silas being persecuted, and guess what? When they become Christians, they got involved in it too. People were set against them and trying to persecute them, and that didn't stop them believing in Jesus. They knew the deal. If I become a Christian, I'm going to sign up for persecution. They, they still believed and were baptized and began to follow Jesus. Now you've got to have hope if you're going to volunteer for being persecuted. You know it's coming, but you, you're still going forward. You're still pressing on. That's hope. That's hope. God will be with me. God will help me. God will take me through. God will bring me to another side. Love labors. Love is more than emotion. In one place in Scripture, love is described as strong as death. Love is what causes a parent to hurl themselves forward and rescue their child because he or she is in danger. Love labors, it works hard for the sake of others. It's love for her family that causes a mum to walk more, hour, more hours than a, than a shift worker. Don't you, mums? <laughs> the labor of love. The labor of love was picked up by Shakespeare. He knew his Bible. There was an English Bible called the Geneva Bible around in Shakespeare's time, and he quotes it all the time. Some of his best phrases aren't his phrases, they're the Bible's phrases. All right? One of his, one of his uh, p p p plays was Love's Labor Lost. And he's picking up on that phrase, labor of love. Of course, if you do an internet search today for labor of love, you'll find all of the best of compilations by UB40. But there you go. There's other things like one I'm going to mention later on. You, you just, if you're wasting your time with Google on these things. Because things have overtaken that. Now we, because of this, you see, let me explain this. Our idea of the labor of love has got twisted around. So, so-and-so is fixing up his old car. It's a labor of love. 
Really? Is it? See, Bible, Bible labor of love, when the Bible says labor of love, it doesn't mean you love something or you love doing this work. It means you love somebody enough to do this work. You love somebody enough to do this for them. So a labor of love is you're working hard because you love the person you're doing it for. Your wife, your family, or preeminently, Jesus. You are working hard because you love him. That is the labor of love. It's mirrored in the way that mums and dads work hard for their family and their kids. You know, going out to work or working in the home. Both are working because you love these people. You work hard because you love. You don't love the job. You don't love the, the money. You don't love the car you're fixing at the weekends. You love people and you work hard for them. That's this labor of love, you know? You see how, how we've pervert things over time. They become almost the opposite of what they originally meant. The point is, faith works for the, love, for the Lord. Hope endures for the Lord. And love labors for the Lord. And all of those words are pretty strong words, aren't they? You know, labor, sorry ladies, but labor is scary. I mean, I'm talking pregnancy, birth labor. That's scary stuff. So when people talk about labor, that, boy, that is hard work. Do you love Jesus enough to do really hard work? See, labor of love. These, and Paul saw these three things in these Thessalonians and is commending them for it. Faith comes by hearing. The reason they had faith was because they'd heard the message of Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the, by the word of God or actually uh, modern versions have that there is the word of Christ. Faith comes through here, this Romans 10, 17. The gospel had come to them, not just with words, but with power, authority, with demonstrations of the Holy Spirit as well. And God had worked in them his grace through the gospel by his power. Then, oh, that's nice. I said, I might do that. Yeah, I think about that. They were impacted by the power of the gospel. God, by his power, caused them to come to faith, to new birth. They'd received the gospel, Paul says, with joy from the Holy Spirit. If, you're gonna, if you know you're, you're joining the persecution queue, you better have joined the Holy Spirit. They'd received much assurance. They were deeply convinced of these things. Someone showed that they were filled with joy through believing the good news. And they had endured severe persecution and more was coming. And that convinced Paul. All of those things, faith, hope and love, working, laboring, enduring, they received the word with joy. They were ready to be persecuted, convinced Paul of something. They, and it's, it's their election. They were chosen and loved by God. I'm convinced of your election. There are people who don't like this doctrine of election. They say, oh, God doesn't choose people, we choose God. That's not what I heard in the Bible. It's not what I hear Jesus saying. It's just not, just not there. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, Jesus said. And this choosing, this electing, see, elect is different from choose. We had an election for local councillors last week, week before. 
Uh, May 23rd, we've got to appoint MEPs. Joke, but there you go. Um, and you appoint, some, you elect someone to go and represent you. You give them authority. You appoint them to a task. When God chooses us, it's not just, oh, he liked us a bit, he loved us a bit, so he chose us. He's chosen us to have the most profound destiny and dignity in all creation. To be the sons of God. To be the grown-up heirs of the living God. To be with him and live with him forever in the glory of his kingdom. We have huge destiny. Election is, wow! Way up there. We've been chosen to this outcome. Meanwhile, we're wrestling with life and with battles and with all kinds of stuff along the way. But that is our destiny. And that's what we have been elected to. We've been put up for that purpose, to that end. They were chosen and loved by God. Because the questions people then start asking is, well, why did God choose us and when did God choose us? Well, let me just briefly outline for you the reasons as Scripture gives them. Why did God choose us? Not because of anything in us. It was because of his own will and kindness, with no regard for anything on our part. It wasn't that he foresaw something that we would do. Even our faith is his gift to us at work in us. He gives faith. When did God choose us? Well, I'll give you the answer. It's very surprising. Before he even made the world from before the foundation of the world. Which is also to say, before you and I had even been born, or were even the sparkle in proverbial father's eye. Before we had done anything, good or bad. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Here's just one scripture to show that to you. I keep jogging my notes and they go back to page one, which is not helpful, David. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, that's blessing of the Spirit, capital S really, in the heavens. For he chose us in him. God the Father chose us in Jesus the Son. When? Before the foundation of the world. To what purpose? Chose, elect, to what purpose? To be holy and blameless in his sight. That's the outcome. And that's the process we're going through now. Growing to be holy and blameless in his sight so that one day we are completely holy and blameless in his sight. When did God make that decision? Before he made the world. Before he made man, before man fell. Before you or I had done anything. Sorry, it goes on, verse 5. In love, that's one of the places where the verse markings and silly places. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. You see that? Purpose. To be adopted as what? Sons. Children of God. He marked us out to be adopted. We get to be the sons of God. According to his favor and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he favored with us, us with in the beloved. So we're talking here about sovereign grace. God's personal choice, personal choosing and electing. 
That grace found us at a time in our lives when we were converted, we were changed, we were brought to faith in Jesus by the gospel, but that grace has been directed us to us from before the world was made. And that grace is now a work in us to change how we live. We now live for him. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. So, these Thessalonians, to move on through our chapter today, had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And again, I told you, sometimes you're wasting your time looking on Google. I looked up to find some pictures of the word idols and went, oh, no. Pop idol. Beauty idol. Korean pop idols. I mean, yeah, you think about it, yes, they are, aren't they? That's what our modern culture calls an idol and is unashamed to call an idol. Someone who's good looking or can sing. Yeah? <laughs> That's an idol. Oh, my word. Let me give you a definition of an idol. Idolatry is worship in serving something as God which is not God. Anything which is not God that you honour and spend your time sorting and addressing and trying to negotiate towards, you know, uh, trying to add it in, into your life or whatever. Anything that you worship and serve, which is not God, is an idol. Back in the day, Thessalonians written, the world was full of idols. The Greeks and the Romans had lots of idols, statues of their gods. They had temples for them. But our idols nowadays don't, aren't statues sitting in temples. Well, they are for some people of a certain religion, but ours are possessions and wealth and power and fame. Though they serve their statues to gain those things too. And by the way, in this whole realm of idolatry, let me add two more. In Ephesians 5 verse 5, Paul says that greed and immorality are also idolatry. To love food so much that you don't know when to stop eating, that's idolatry. We also turn from serving idols to serve the living God. We turn from idols to serve the living God. That's part of conversion. Today, we don't have the, the statues and temples thing, but we still have a world that's serving idols. If you don't believe me, do the same Google search and see what I found. People are serving idols, things that they've set up there, I want that, I want to be like that. They're objectifying people and saying, I wish I was that, that person. They even get their faces moved around and filled and things to become more like their who? Their idol. But we as Christians forsake idols, turn from idols to serve the living God. John Stott, good old Anglican Bible commentator and pastor and preacher, he says, conversion, which is a turn from sin to Christ, from darkness to light, from idols to God. My friends, that is what it is to become a Christian, to make those turns, to turn from sin to Christ, from darkness to light, from idols to God. 
Then he also writes John Stott again. It's a bit small, but it's in the notes. Idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many. God is one. Idols are visible and tangible. You can touch them and see them. God is invisible and intangible, beyond the reach of sight and touch. Idols are creatures, the work of human hands. God is the creator of the universe and all mankind. And one other person I read this week adds to that list. He's got, his list is also similar, but he, he's, these are things that Stott didn't say. Idols are unreal. They're fake, to use a famous word nowadays. He, God, is real, genuine. They are unable to help. He is almighty and eager to help. When you pray to a false god, you're going to get zero response. There's a saying, I think it's Sicilian rather than even Italian, pray to someone who can help you. Pray to the living God, who's almighty and eager to come to your help. But your idols will fail you. There are lots of Old Testament scriptures that rail against Israel's idols. The first century is full of idols. Our 21st century is full of them too, but they have a different form. But the call to follow Jesus is to forsake idols and serve the living God. And John closes his first and longest letter towards the end of the Bible with these words. And he's talking about the true one and the fake one, again here, in a way. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true God, the true one. And we are in the true one. That is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is, Jesus, do you notice that? Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Last statement of good old John, elderly man now, writing one of his last letters. What are his last words? Little children, guard yourselves from idols. One or him says, the dearest idol I have known, whatever it may be, help me to tear it from my heart and worship only thee. Idolatry is insidious, which I mean sneaky, just plain English. It's sneaky. You, don't often you won't even realize you're doing it sometimes. You've allowed something to gain your attention and focus and your affection. And things that belong to God are being given to something or someone else. We're to keep ourselves from idols. The Thessalonians had turned from idols. Now we come to our main topic, which comes up in every chapter of Thessalonians 1 and Thessalonians 2. I like it, I like it, this kind of, I don't know, I, I borrowed it. Jesus the return, you know, it's like the sequel. You know. Jesus the return. We are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, over the next coming weeks, I've got a lot to say about the coming of Jesus, the second coming, the last day, uh, the resurrection of the dead, things like that. And you will, I think, have questions. You may be disappointed in some things I'm saying because I don't fit what you've already heard. Please bear with me. And if you've got questions, do ask me and I'll save you either answer them briefly at the time or I'll say, do you know what, we're coming to that in two weeks' time, but I'll remember you've asked it and I'll make sure I'm very clear on that. Yeah? 
So let's have some dialogue together about this, Chris. There was a point in my life when I realized that a lot of stuff I'd been told didn't work on this topic, on this subject, this topic. It just didn't add up. And I had to, for a long time, just go through the Bible and patiently let the Bible talk to me until a new picture emerged, until a new way of looking at that came about. Then I discovered that that was the way the old guys are thought anyway. You know, people like Calvin and Augustine. They, they thought like that anyway. I just rediscovered the truth that they'd already seen. But never mind. Two statements here in this verse. Jesus rescues us from God's day of wrath and we are waiting, preparing for him. I'm going to take them in that order. First of all, saved from wrath. God's wrath, not just some old wrath, God's wrath. God pouring out his judgment. Uh, Psalm 96 says, uh, rejoice before the Lord, uh, let the fields and the hills skip for joy. Why? Because the Lord's coming. What's he coming to do? He's coming to judge the earth. Is that, a, is that something to be excited about? Well, it is if you're on the right side of the judgment. Saved from God's wrath. Jesus raised from the dead rescues us from the coming wrath. The whole unbelieving world lies under the wrath of God. That is God's just condemnation. Why does God have wrath against an unbelieving world? A number of reasons. His laws have been broken. His kingship has been spurned. His fatherhood has been rejected. His honour has been given to false gods, and even his existence has been denied. Has God got reason to be wrathful? Sure. Here again, let me give you those famous words, John 3.16, and the, what follows as well. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. That's fall to destruction after the resurrection but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, not in his first coming, but that the world might be saved through him. And this is the age we're living now, where Jesus is saving the world, not all at one go, but person by person, household by household, town by town. The gospel is working across the world so that from the world people are being called into the kingdom of Jesus. Wrong order, sorry. So that the world might be saved. I've missed the scripture here. Verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. Let me read that again. Anyone who believes in him, in Jesus, is what? Not condemned. The wrath of God is no longer assigned to you. It's been moved away from you. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned, not waiting to be condemned, is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. I've given you a scripture in Romans 2 in the notes there, but you can read that when you have a minute. Unbelieving people are already condemned. The wrath of God awaits them. Continued rejection of God's kindness adds to their condemnation. But faith in Jesus saves us from the coming wrath. Why? Because Jesus has taken our sin, died our death, and borne our wrath. What was happening during those hours of darkness on the cross? Jesus was carrying and bearing in himself all the justice and condemnation and wrath of the Father against you and I. 
All the waves and billows of God's justice and wrath were poured upon Christ. So that whoever believes in him is not condemned and no longer lives under the coming wrath of God. You're looking very serious at me. That's some of the best news on this planet. We are saved from the coming wrath through God. So Beale, one commentator, says, Christ, beautifully simple sentences, Christ has already suffered the end time wrath of God for his people at the cross. Christ has suffered God's end time wrath against us at the cross for us. The wrath of God has not been moved away. Oh, I'll just forget about that. We'll just let one go. It's been dealt with. It's been paid. It's been borne by Jesus. God does not blink at things. He's poured them upon his son so that they are paid for. Justice has been dealt with. When the last day comes and the world is judged, because Jesus is now our saviour, we will not be condemned with the world. He saves us from the wrath that is to come because that wrath has been taken in his own body. Later on in 1 Thessalonians, to jump forward further down the letter. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we awake or asleep, we live together with him. This one thing that I'm saved from God's wrath should make me overflow with gratitude and thankfulness. I should be shouting my hallelujahs for that one. We are saved from the wrath to come. And we're waiting for his son, Jesus. Okay, I've got things out of order there. Waiting for the son. Waiting for his son. So we don't fear the return of the Lord Jesus. We are anticipating, preparing for his coming. Waiting for the son, though, is not like waiting when you go to the doctor's. Did I miss the buzz? Do you know, I've sat in the doctors and forgot why I went there. <laughs> when it buzzed and I'm going, I think, what did I come here for? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not just hanging around. Waiting here is much bigger and far more positive than just hanging around. This waiting is as Jesus described in his teaching. Wise virgins wait by having lamps and oil ready to meet the bridegroom and they're staying, they're staying prepared, ready for him to arrive. That's in Matthew 25. Wise servants in Luke 12 are prepared by doing their master's business and not mistreating their fellow servants because they don't know when the master's going to arrive. That's waiting. Let me give you an example some of you may be more familiar with. Okay, someone important is coming to your home. Maybe it's the pastor, you know, it's like, some people feel like that about, you know, I don't do that stuff, I don't like that mess and fuss. But someone's coming to your home and you so guess what, are you busy? Oh yeah, oh yes, sweeping, swabbing, wiping down, food, food, new towels in the bathroom. It just goes on and on, doesn't it? The more important that you think someone's, someone is who's coming, the more work you're putting in. They used to say the Queen thought the whole world spent a fresh paint. Because they'd already they spruced it up for it to come and it hadn't dried yet, you know? It's like, she thought of the rest of everybody outside of Buckingham Palace smelled like that. It's a joke. 
but you, you, you get ready. You, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, you know, are we ready yet? Are we ready yet? You know, I, I used to say, boy, it's really hard work when someone's coming. That is how we wait for the Son of God. It comes back to faith working and hope enduring and love laboring. We're, at a ma- we're about our master's business. We're not slacking. It's being prepared, putting in effort. The angels had to say to the disciples on the Mount of Olives when Jesus had gone from their sight, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? Do you think that's it? <laughs> Are you waiting for him to come back again now? This Jesus has been taken from you to heaven will come in the same way you've seen him going into heaven. And they, Jesus had given them a big commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Baptize those who believe and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So we wait for our Lord from heaven, not by gazing into heaven and not by poring over the latest prophetic theories and predictions on the internet, which is about as much of a waste of time as watching TV soaps, by the way. If you've got a crazy idea, don't worry, you'll find some chump who agrees with you somewhere on the internet. It's a waste of time. But we wait for him by obeying him, living for him, being prepared for his return. Last words go to Jesus himself. I try always to leave Jesus' word last. Luke 12, Jesus speaking to us. Be ready for service, for work, and have your lamps lit. You must be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet. So, that when he, so he's coming back to his house. So that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Those slaves the master finds alert when he comes will be blessed, rewarded. I assure you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then he will come and serve them. Wow. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and he finds them alert, those slaves are blessed. But know this. If the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So thieves come too when you don't expect them. You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now that blows a hole in a whole bunch of prophetic theories straight away, right? A whole, tons of them are blown to smithereens just by that comment of Jesus. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Yet, you need to be living expectantly and ready. And that's that's the paradox of the second coming of Jesus. It may not be yet. We may not know when, but we live now as every day being ready. Waiting for the sun. Question, are you getting ready? About our master's business? Forsaking idols, serving the living God? Faith that works, hope that endures, love that labors because we are now focused on him. The center, core, foundation, cornerstone of our lives is Jesus. We live for him. We live by faith in the Son of God. Let's pray together.
what we've been looking at this morning in Scripture may be urging some of us to make some change in our lives. For one or two people, it may be to make the biggest change in your life, which is to begin to turn to Jesus and away from other things. But why don't you take a moment right now and do your own talking to the Lord. I've done my talking. Why don't you do your talking to the Lord? Call on Him. If there's an area of your life where you need help, affirm again today you believe Him and trust Him. You are hoping in Him. And you're going to wait for His answer and His help on that day. Jesus, we worship you. Thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus, we cannot honour you more highly than you deserve or that the Father has already honoured you. Except in the way that we live. We do not want our songs and praises on Sunday to outstretch our living 24-7. We want to live as examples of this wonderful good news. We are saved from the wrath of God by the death of Jesus, saved to live a new life as is supplied by his grace. Thank you, Father, for such incredible choice that you've made to rescue wretches living under your wrath and give them the inheritance of sons. One day we will inherit our Father's kingdom and be with him forever. Help us, Lord Jesus, to process life as it is, not pretending, not faking things, but actually making those decisions and choices day by day that honour you and pursue this life of faith in Christ. We ask it for his name and honour. Amen. Amen. We're going to break bread together. Someone's having a good time, not outside. Um,